Okay, guys, we are we're in lesson 24, and we're going to look again at the issue of the bodily resurrection, the certainty of the bodily bodily resurrection, and uh, we're looking at part two here. So we're in chapter 15, a very foundational chapter to the New Testament as it talks about Jesus' resurrection, the surety of Jesus' resurrection, and the implication of that for you and I. Because remember now, this is something that the Corinthian church was struggling with. There were some there who didn't believe in a resurrection. They believed that Jesus died for their died and for, and they had salvation through Jesus, but they didn't believe in a resurrection. And you could probably see, you know, trying to say, well, where did they get that from? Well, think about it for a moment. If there were Jews there, remember there was a, there was a group of Jewish priests and so forth who didn't believe in a resurrection. Remember, they were called the Sadducees. So maybe some of that influence crept into the church through the Jewish believers in Corinth. But the point was is that they, they didn't believe in a bodily resurrection, and that's what Paul is trying to deal with here and tell them that the bodily resurrection of Jesus is a certain fact and that they're one day going to have a, a resurrected body as well. So let's look, first of all, the reality of Christ's resurrection. Look with me at verse 20 through 28. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death by man, also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the first fruits, and afterward those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is, is accepted. Now, when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Okay, so let's look at a few things here. First of all, the affirmation concerning Jesus' resurrection. Paul affirms that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. Good point for me to stop and make a point to you. Because a lot of times you'll read in the paper about the Gospel of Judas. How many of you have heard about the Gospel of Judas? Uh, or the Gospel of Peter. There, there are a lot of different books that have been written. They're Gnostic books. and But they were written sometime around two or three hundred years after Jesus died. These were Gospels that appeared sometime about two or three hundred years after Jesus died. And you'll hear a lot of scholars on the news make a big deal out of it. You know, that these are legitimate. Now, I'm going to ask you a point-blank question, and I want to ask you to think about it for a moment. Which do you think is more reliable, a gospel that was written 300 years after Jesus died or a gospel or letter that was written within 30 or 40 years after he died by the people who saw him, who interacted with him? Anybody? Which, is more, which would you say is more accurate? Yeah. Did you understand? So, for instance, uh, if you... Let's take an event that... This was before my time by a few years, but some of you remember when JFK was assassinated, right? All right. 
which would you accept? If I wrote a book on the assassination of JFK or if there was a reporter who was there who saw it and wrote on it? Who would you accept as being more valid? Me or the reporter who saw it? Yeah, do you see what I'm saying? This is the point I want you to see. So you've got to be very careful. What they don't tell you is when the Gospel of Judas was written. You understand? So I guess what I'm trying to say is you've got to be so careful what you hear. So when we talk about this letter, for instance, this letter right here, 1 Corinthians, is actually the first letter or first book of the New Testament that was written. It was written before any of the other Gospels. This is the first. Paul wrote this one first. So we're talking about somebody who sometimes, probably within 20 or 30 years after the death of Jesus, the people who saw Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, he already said some of them are alive. So he's very certain about this. He affirms that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, not just because of their witness, but because he himself had seen the resurrected Jesus. So let's go on to He goes on and says he affirms that Jesus is the first of many who will be raised. Now, Here's what he's saying, the first fruit. Some of you are gardeners, and you plant your tomatoes, or you've got your raspberry bushes, and, and you know, and even your strawberry. Have you noticed that the first pickings are really the nice ones, aren't they? But the first pickings are a foreshadowing of what? Hopefully that there's going to be more picking, right? Here's what Paul is using. He's using that analogy of first fruits to say to us, that Jesus' resurrection is a foreshadowing of the resurrection of all believers. That you and I are all going to have a resurrected body. See, this is what he's trying to make the point here. Jesus rose from the dead. He's affirming that. Because remember, they're struggling with that. They're struggling with whether or not they're going to rise from the dead. or you know, once Because they're, they're probably believing that when they're dead, that's it. So he's saying, Jesus is risen from the dead. But he's the first fruits of all who will raise up later. So when you and I have a hope for our loved ones who passed away who know Jesus, we have a hope because we recognize that if Jesus rose from the dead, they'll raise from the dead. You understand? That's our hope. He's the first fruits of what's to come. He's the first fruits of hope for us that there's something after this life. Now, look at the contrast here. So he's going to make a contrast between Adam and Christ here. The first contrast is concerning Adam. Through Adam, death affected all humanity. Do you realize the reason why we have sickness? Do you realize the reason why we have cancer? The reason why we have war? The reason why we have death? Everybody's affected by death. Is that not true? We hate it. I hate death. It's terrible. But the reason why is because one man sinned. Our great, 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 we can spend a whole lot of greats, grandfather, Adam. You know, perfect humanity chose to sin, rebel against God. And because of that, sin entered into the world, and we were all born sinners. And the, the consequence of sin is what? What did Paul say in Romans? For the wages of sin is death. So, through Adam, death has affected all humanity. Through Adam, death has affected all humanity. Now, here's what he's saying, though. He's contrasting that with Christ, and he says, through Christ, life and resurrection is available to men. See, life, eternal life, 
and resurrection are available to all men through Jesus. Death came to all humanity, but through Jesus, life comes to, and it, 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 let me just say, it's available to humanity, not just men, ladies. Uh, it's to, available to all through Jesus. So then he goes on from there, and then he wants to talk about the, the reality of the resurrection with reference to the final events, with re- reference to the future events, which, let's be honest, you know, a lot of people are talking about that these days, aren't they? People are talking about the end. Always after an election. You ever notice that? Always after an election, we talk about the end. Well, we need to talk about the end, but it's not necessarily because of an election. We need to recognize that everything is moving to a final climax when Jesus Christ will come back. And so Paul's going to talk about that with reference to the resurrection. So here's what he says. Jesus' resurrection was the first of all future resurrections. There's going to be a resurrection of the dead. The scripture describes it as the ground giving up, the graves giving up, the sea giving up the dead. There's going to be a resurrection. That's why the Bible refers to the people who have died as being, what, asleep. They're going to be woken up. So he goes on and he says that. Then here's what he's saying. There will be a resurrection unto life at the second coming of Jesus Christ. At the second coming of Jesus, the dead in Christ will raise up. In fact, isn't that what First Thessalonians talks about? Let me, let, me give you, let me just turn over there real quick. First Thessalonians, let me read it to you. Chapter 4, if you want to write this reference down. I believe it's verse 13. But I do not want you to be here. He's talking about the same issue. He's talking about a little bit different. The issue is about the same with the Thessalonians. I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. So he doesn't want them to be ignorant, and he doesn't want them sorrowing like those who have no hope. Listen to what he says. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, what are we talking about? The resurrection. Even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, and with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and notice what it says, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Okay, so there's a resurrection. And those who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. And so, here's what he's saying. There, there will be a resurrection unto life. Now then he talks about the end. Jesus will put an end to all earthly governments and kingdoms. That includes the United States of America. Sometimes, as believers in the United States, we have this concept of God and country, the same. But the reality is, is that our nation will face the same judgment as all other nations. You understand? And so, what he's saying here is that all nations, all governments, all kings, all presidents will be brought into subjection to the one true king, the king of kings, the lord of lords, who? Jesus. King Jesus. So, he will put an end to all earthly governments and kingdoms, because he's going to establish his kingdom. That's it. Then he goes on. He will present his kingdom. See, here's what he do. He'll present his kingdom to God the Father. Okay? He'll present his kingdom to God the Father. This is more likely speaking about his millennial reign when he's here to reign for a thousand years. 
In fact, let me, let me just give you a little bit of a history, give you a little bit of thought here, just to help you to guide your thoughts through the Bible. As you study the Bible, you begin to realize that there are tests of humanity. Humanity is tested through and through. Let me explain to you. I'll just go right through the Genesis all the way to Revelation. Explain to you what I'm talking about. He creates two people in the garden, Adam and Eve. How'd they do? Not good. No. Fall starts. Then from Adam up to Noah, he gives them, a, you know, he institutes this issue of sacrifices. How did they do? Not really good. Only one family, and the rest of them had to be wiped out by a flood. So he starts all over with Noah and his family. From Noah up to Abraham, how did they do? Not good. So he has to choose one man and say, I'm going to start a nation out of you. So out of, out of Abraham, he starts the nation through Isaac and Jacob comes the children of the twelve tribes of Jacob, the twelve tribes of Israel. He, he calls a chosen people. He, he, you know, he redeems them from Egypt. He gives them his law. He abide, has his presence abide with them. How did they do? Not good. Could they, could, could they save themselves? They didn't do good at all. So then, notice something. Let's move on a little bit. They fail too. Then Jesus comes. He goes to the cross and is rises from the dead, giving us a new covenant. He establishes the church. How's the church doing? Not good. See, what's going to happen then is, is he tests humanity even more. The tribulation period is a test of humanity. How's the, how does humanity handle the tribulation period? Well, they blaspheme God and reject him. He, okay, so he comes. He establishes his kingdom. Revelation tells us this. After a thousand years, how does humanity handle Jesus, King Jesus himself ruling? Not good. Gog and Magog happens, where humanity rises against Jesus in rebellion, and guess what? They're wiped out, except for those who believe. Then it enters into eternity. See, you, you can look and see there's a test of humanity all along. And how are we doing? We're not doing too good. Not at all. And the reality is, is only by faith can we live the life that God wants us to live. By faith and trust in Him. So, let's go on. So, He'll present His kingdom. And then notice something. I've already told it, I've already mentioned this a little bit. He will reign until He has defeated all of His enemies. The enemies of Christ will be destroyed. Period. You say, now who's the enemies? The outright Satanists? No. The Bible makes it very clear that the enemies of God are anyone who rebel against him, period. Now, you say, rebel, what does that mean? Well, anybody have a thought of what it means to rebel against God? Okay, that's one aspect of it. Not do his will, but if we want sin. Because there are some people who have never heard of Jesus Christ, they're still going to go to hell. Why? Because of their what? Sin. You understand, our sin condemns us to hell, period. You know what I'm saying? Our sin condemns us to hell. Our sin brought the death penalty of the second death, period. Now, Jesus, in his grace, reaches out to us. God reaches out to us through his Son and provides a way of escape through faith. You understand? That's where salvation comes from. That's what we're saved from, is the destiny. Here's the thing. You hear people talk about in terms of destiny, destiny that God predestines people to go to hell. You ever heard that kind of thing before? Some of you have heard that thing. God doesn't predestine anybody to go to hell. 
Humanity chose to go to hell. You understand what I'm saying? When we sin, we are rebelling against God, and the just God that He is requires a penalty for our sin, which is what? Death. Salvation comes to us because somebody else paid the penalty for that sin. Who was that? Jesus. You understand? So that's what I want you to see. So then, in fact, the last of all, what does Jesus destroy last of all? What's the last enemy that he destroys? Death. Last of all, Jesus will destroy death. Listen to this passage from Revelation. Now, when a thousand years had expired and Satan was released from prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea, they went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and of the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them, that's one of our enemies, is it not? was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and prophet are, and they were tormented day and night forever. Now listen to this. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Our very enemy death will be dealt with. You know what? If we're there, I think we will be there. We will rejoice. We will rejoice that death that took our loved ones will be gone. You know what I'm saying? We will rejoice. Now, here's the completion of the Son's work. God is responsible for, for subjecting all things to Jesus Christ. It's God who places all things under the authority and rulership of Jesus, King Jesus. And so here, I want you to notice something. So that you understand Jesus is not just doing his own thing. The Son is subordinate to the Father with reference to his work. The, the Son only does what the Father says. Isn't that what we see in the Gospel of John? I look and see what my father is doing and I join him in what he's doing, is what John would say. Okay, now let's, let's go on. We're going to look at the implications concerning if there were no resurrection. What are the implications if there were no resurrection? Look with me at verse 29 through 34. Here's what Paul is saying. Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead, if the dead do not rise at all. Why then are they baptized for the dead? And why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm by boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is, what advantage is it to me if the dead do not rise? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness and do not sin. For some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Okay, so he's going to deal with a couple things here. First of all, there was a practice that the Corinthians were involved in. And it had to do with the baptism of the dead. So Paul points out that if there was no resurrection, their practice is meaningless. So for some reason, the Corinthian church decided that they would be baptized, similar to the Mormons. The Mormons are doing that today. But, okay, but here's what I want you to see. There are like 200 different views concerning this verse. We could have two days' worth of just talking about what people believe was going on here. I don't know what was going on here. It's the only time it's mentioned. It obviously hasn't stuck in church history. 
uh, vicarious baptism. It is believed that the Corinthian believers were being baptized for those believers who had died without being baptized. So it would be like the thief on the cross dying and then someone deciding, well, he needed to be baptized for us all, be baptized for the thief on the cross. They say that sounds very similar to what Mormons are doing. Well, actually, no. Church history speaks against the Mormon practice. Okay. In fact, how many of you recently just saw that the, that uh, there was a Jewish group that told the Mormons to quit baptizing for their dead? You know, because that's what they do. The Mormons have, you know, they're big into genealogy, and they trace back because they want to be baptized for everybody. So what we're seeing here is is that whatever the practice was that he's referring to. Paul is saying their practice was completely meaningless. Their practice was completely meaningless. He goes on, though, and he talks about something that we can relate to, and that's his suffering. Paul states that if there was no resurrection, why would he place himself in danger? If Jesus Christ hasn't, hadn't risen from the dead, why would he be doing what he's doing? Why would he go and endure the suffering and the persecution and the stonings and the floggings and the shipwrecks and all this stuff, ridicule, suffering, people trying to kill you. Just read the book of Acts and you'll see they were trying to kill him. Having to escape out through baskets, out of the city wall to get away. I mean, if, if it wasn't real, he's saying, if Jesus Christ hadn't risen from the dead, why in the world would I be going through all this stuff in order to prove to you that he had, if he hadn't? He's trying to say, why would I suffer like this? Why would I endure this pain and this suffering if it wasn't real? If it wasn't real, why would I do that? And that's a very good point. Think about it for a moment. Do you realize all of the apostles except one were martyred? All of them except one were martyred. Church history will tell us. We all know about James from the book of Acts. He had his head removed. Peter crucified upside down. Others were boiled alive. Some were skinned alive. I mean, we're talking cruel things that happened to them. If it was not real, why would they continue to preach the message and then suffer the way they did for nothing? He said, well, they were crazy. That many people crazy? I mean, you could say one or two maybe going off the deep end, but that many people going off the deep end? If it wasn't real. That's his point here. He goes on and he says this. Paul points out the reality of his life continually being in danger. He says, look, my life is continually in danger. Now, how many of you are really worried about walking down the streets of Kerwinsville? I mean, how many of you are like looking over your shoulder because you're afraid somebody's going to come get you? Somebody might grab you. How many of you are like that? Nobody's like that. Here's what I'm saying. For most of us, we don't live with that kind of fear. We don't live with the fear of walking in here and having a worship service and having people bust in through the door and dragging us all away, do we? No. But here's what I want you to see. His, his, his point is, is, you know, if it's real, look at how I'm living. Look at how I'm living. It's real. He goes on then, and he says, what's the advantage of it? States, to what advantage is his suffering if there is no resurrection? What advantage... Is there for me to go through this junk if there's no resurrection? Is Paul the eternal victim? You understand what I mean by that, the eternal victim? The eternal victim is the person who just constantly is, you know, they've been preyed upon, and then now they live in a state of constantly being preyed upon. People, You've met people like that. You know what I'm saying? 
It's, even when you tell them, you need to get out of that job, or, and you don't know, no, you're, I mean, they just continue to stay there. And this is what, this is not what Paul's saying. He's not a victim here. He's saying, guys, I am enduring this because it is real. What advantage is it to me to continue to stay here and endure this stuff when I could be farming somewhere? Or making tents? And just living a regular life? What advantage is it? So he's trying to show the validity of the resurrection through the things that he's dealing with here. So then he gives an exhortation, verse 33 through 34, and this is where we're going to wrap up our time. And we'll spend a little bit of time on both of these. Verse 33, notice what he says. Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. All right, listen to me. This is what you and I need to pay attention to. Paul warns them that they must watch who influences them. See, he's getting right to the heart of the matter here. He's saying, guys, you, you've lost the whole perspective on the resurrection. You've been deceived into thinking it's not there. Well, if there's no resurrection, if Jesus Christ didn't rise from the dead, then what you believe is meaningless. What I'm going through is meaningless. Why in the world are we here? And the reason why you are wrestling with this is because you have allowed someone to come in or you have allowed yourself to be influenced by someone who has corrupted your thinking in this area, therefore now you don't even believe that there is a resurrection. This is the whole point he's making here. He's not just talking about, about you know, one bad apple spoils a whole bunch. He's talking about that their whole concept of God and about Jesus has been altered because they have allowed themselves to be influenced by others. And so he makes the general principle here, you've got to watch who influences you. Now, let me just stop for a moment. You think that has application today? Why do you think that has application today? Anybody? Not just influence to do wrong, Bruce, but influence to change our way of thinking. Yes, that's right, which would be wrong. Anybody else? Why do you think it's important today? You know, it's my truth, you know. It reminds me of a story I read about this guy who was into, I think it was a quote from Bill Hybels from Little Creek Community Church in Chicago. He talked about one of his books about this guy came up to him who was into the New Age movement and he didn't believe in absolute truth. And he and his wife would go to these New Age movement groups and absolute truth is whatever you want truth to be for you. It's my truth and your truth may be different. Well, then he, he kind of connected up with a gal in the group that their truths may be matched together. So when he left his wife, he told his wife, you know, this is my truth. My truth is to go with her. You have your truth. And so he dumped her. And then later he came to Christ and realized the fallacy of it. And that, that's really when you don't think there's any absolute truth or any absolute right or wrongs. There's no moral values. You have chaos. And that's happening. We're being influenced in that way. Where Have you noticed where things that were wrong, and I'm not just talking about big issues, but things that were wrong 10 years ago are now okay? And things that are not, that were, you know, that were okay 10 years ago are not okay. I mean, how many of you would ever think that the Boy Scouts were bad? I mean, we're watching the Disney movies where the Boy Scout, they always have a scene with a Boy Scout walking an old lady across the street. Why did they do that? Because they were lifting up how great Boy Scouts are. Now Boy Scouts are not great. We're, we're voting them out of meeting in city buildings and stuff. Why is that? Because the culture is shifting why is that? Because the culture is shifting its thinking because it's being continually influenced. 
the biggest influencer in our in our world today is what? Media. And and it's the big three, television, radio, internet. Television, radio, internet, and those things influence you. In fact, I, I don't watch television. Because I, 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 I don't have time to watch television. I try to read, spend time with my family. I don't have time to watch television. But I was somewhere, and do you remember the Dukes of Hazard that, that used to be that came on back in the 70s? I remember as a boy living for the Dukes of Hazard, Bo and Luke Duke. All right? And by how great the Dukes of Hazard were. And I was somewhere... I think I was at a conference or taking a class and I was in a hotel room with another pastor and the Dukes of Hazard came on and I said, oh, leave that on. It's the Dukes of Hazard. Bo and Luke did. I'm watching it and first of all, I'm thinking, this is pretty stupid. Why did I like that? Why did I? Yes. Moonshine runners. Yes, okay. All right. Yeah, okay. Here's what I'm trying to say to you. My, my whole point is, is see how much we've influenced to think about what you're watching today. Would you have watched it years ago? No, you wouldn't. See, something has suddenly changed. Evil influences will corrupt you, whether you realize it or not. So the issue is that you have to. You, Paul is saying the initiative has to be on you to watch your thinking. To watch your thinking. So, for instance... I'll give you another evil influence. This is happening in our churches today, in our circle of churches. I think this is an evil influence. You may disagree with me, but I really do believe it is. When a person comes to Christ, they don't know very much, do they? They go to a church where they're told that the only Bible you should read is a King James. Let's say this is a King James Bible. This is actually a new King James Bible. That it's the only Bible there is. And they, you know, as a new believer, you're going to accept it. Okay, pastor says it's the only Bible I should read. So I should only read a King James Bible. Now, here's the problem. When they open up a King James Bible, can they read it? Now, some of you seniors can because you have read it all of your life. I'm going to be honest with you. I deal with people continually, and I say to them, well, do you have a Bible? And they say, oh, yeah, I have a Bible, but I can't read it. And I say to them, what kind of Bible is it? Well, it says James on the side. You know, King James was written on a 12th grade level. Hey, I have a Bible program that has a King James dictionary that will tell me the meaning of words that are old, that are no longer used in our society, so that I understand what they are. So here's what I'm saying. That is an evil influence. So what happens is that you have, you tell people to read a Bible that nobody's going to read, and really the life for you as a believer comes from where? The Bible. How does God speak to you? Through the Bible. So I have you read a Bible you can't read. I might as well give everybody here a German Luther Bible and say to you, it is the only true Bible because it's the first Protestant Bible that Luther wrote and everybody here. So can you, how many of you can read German? I can. A little bit. But I mean, what good is it going to be? You carry your Luther Bible to, to, you know, you never open it because you looked at it and said, I can't figure that out. See, that's the evil. See, influences are not just from the culture. Influences can happen within a church and they can corrupt you. They can mess up your thinking. Let me just stop for a moment. This is actually the point that's happening here in Corinth. 
Do you realize that the Corinthians' struggle with the resurrection isn't because somebody from the outside said there was no resurrection. It was because somebody from the inside said there was no resurrection. Inside of what? The church. Do you understand what I'm saying? So the struggle there is be careful of evil influences even within the congregation who would cause you to what? Stumble. Or who would cause you to change your thinking. Let me just one little comment about the King James thing. We used to get a publication here at this church that I guess they got before I got here. It was an independent Baptist publication. I won't say what the name of it is. And the gentleman who was writing is now dead. But he said this. He was answering a Bible question. And I guess the question had to do with understanding something in their Bible. And it was the King James. First of all, he said, I always have to use a King James Bible. And then he said this. If you do not understand what's in your King James Bible, then you need to wait. Keyword, wait. For your pastor to explain it to you from the pulpit. And if he doesn't ever get there, you don't need to worry about it. Now, what's the problem with that thinking? Yes, and so if I don't understand it, who am I, who, what, am, what happens with that kind of thinking? I'm placing my life as a believer in the hands of who? The pastor. The pastor. Yeah, it's almost, can I be honest with you, medieval Roman Catholicism. Yeah, where you rely completely on the priest to guide every aspect of your life, and it does away with one of the things we believe as Baptists is the priesthood of what? All believers. That every one of you, as a believer in Jesus Christ, are a priest before God, and you are able to understand, as the Holy Spirit gives you understanding, into the Word. See, that's what's going on here. It's a control thing. This is the kind of stuff that I'm saying to you. We even today have to watch what influences us. Let me just go ahead and say this. Don't accept everything I'm saying. Test it. Study. Be like the Bereans in the, in the chapter in, in Acts where when Paul and, Paul and Barnabas spoke to them, they went and studied the Scriptures for themselves and said, okay, yeah, I can see where George is coming from here. Why? Because if you don't, I could deceive you. I could lead you down the wrong road. I could start driving a Cadillac and you paying for it. Did you know what I'm saying? That happens, doesn't it? You understand what I'm saying? Because you're not encouraged to study that. Okay? Let's go London. Paul tells them to wake up to the reality that not everyone speaks for God. Can I, let me just stop for a moment. Some of you watch the Christian TV shows. How many, how many of you watch Christian TV channels on your that table or something? Okay. Can't, let me just stop for a moment. Not every dude or dudette on the TV is of God. Let me just go ahead and say that. Not every guy or gal who's on there, I don't care if Bishop is in front of their name or not, is of God or not. You've got to be discerning. Don't just accept what they're spewing out to you. You've got to open it up and say, wait a minute now. The source of truth is the Bible. How does that match up to what the Bible says? So, for instance, there's some guys out there that will say that Job, remember Job from the Old Testament? That Job sinned. Very common viewpoint today, that Job sinned. Here's the problem. The Bible says very clearly, and Job sinned not. Now, but if you're not reading your Bible, 
You don't know that. Yeah, the responsibility is yours. I have a responsibility to teach, to communicate, to help you to mature, but the responsibility is you to what? Don't just accept everything hook, line, and sinker. Don't accept everything hook, line, and sinker. You have to study it out for yourself and let God show you the truth. See, this is why they're struggling with the whole resurrection issue. These, these two final two points have to deal with the issue of why they are struggling with the resurrection issue. Is because somebody has come in, either from up from among them, or maybe another visiting pastor or evangelist or something, has come in and said to them, you don't need, there's no resurrection. And he maybe was an eloquent speaker. Maybe had a whole bunch of degrees and credentials. And they said, oh, well, you know, hey, he knows more than I do. And that's the reality. Who's got to check it? Okay, now let me just close with this. Then. So, here's my point. Bruce said it. Who's the responsibility with, Bruce? The responsibility is with you. All right, so how do I take my responsibility? Read your Bible. You've got to read your Bible. God will speak to you as you read your Bible. See, here's the thing. The Bible is not just a... Something to take up space on the nightstand, or for some people, something you shove in the back of the vehicle so everybody sees you got a Bible in the back of your vehicle when you're riding down the road. Never gets, I mean, it, you, I've seen them, and they look faded because the sun's beat down on them and gathered with dust, they look white. But you know it's a Bible back there, and you say, oh, that's a Christian. It's not that. It's what? It's for you to read. Now, you say, well, man, I can't read my Bible. Then you need to talk to me, and we will get you a Bible that you can read. We will do that. We buy Bibles here and give them to people. We buy study Bibles and give them to people, so they have something to even help them as they're studying. The whole point is why? Because we want you to be men and women of the Word, and when you come to a conviction about something, it's not because Pastor George told you that, it's because God told you that through the Word. So that when somebody says to you, well, when you die, you die, you're in the ground, you're dead, you say, no, that isn't true. Here's how I know. And so that's the point. Evil company will corrupt you. Period. You've got to be careful. You've got to be careful. Okay, let's close our time in prayer.